let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joel Craft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Wednesday evening, an evening where we have been reflecting into the richness huh, of the Lord's Prayer, the Gospel Prayer, that prayer we just prayed, right? And hopefully by now, when we open up every single program here on Seeds of Truth with that prayer, you're just not saying those words without any critical reflection, hopefully by now, um, you have well understood that prayer is both mind and heart, huh? And it is mind and heart to the extent that we take what we study here and internalize it, reflecting upon it, contemplating the deeper meaning of the words, that we might be enriched by it. You see, we spend the time we spend here on Seeds of Truth reflecting into the Lord's Prayer so that when we pray the Lord's Prayer, we might be enriched by the prayer, huh? And that we might, in praying it, come to better understand who we are and where we are going. All very relevant, huh? As we are wrapping up our final reflections into the final words given to us from Christ in this great gospel prayer, uh, those words, the kingdom, the power, and the glory. Now, last time together, we were talking about that great passage that comes to us from 1 Peter 3.15. Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who calls you to account for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and reverence. Why? Because if divine sonship is the stuff of our life in Christ, then my dear friends, hope is the substance of the good news we have to tell the world. Always be prepared says St. Peter, to make a defense to anyone who calls you to account for the hope that is inside of you. Now, I wanted to hit the pause button here a little bit and consider this passage in greater detail. First, that word always. Here we are brought back to the importance of what prayer is all about, huh? What does Paul say in 1 Thessalonians 5, 17? Pray without ceasing. Pray without ceasing. Remember, prayer is conversation with God, perpetual courtship with God. Therefore, we should always be praying to God. Yes, in that formal prayer of the Mass and, and the Divine Office, maybe, and then the Rosary and the Chaplet of Divine Mercy, but also in that day-to-day -day conversation with God, bringing to God all of our hopes, needs, dreams. He wants all of it. He wants all of it. So that word always... <laughs> always be prepared. Be perpetually disposed. Be perpetually disposed. You are perpetually disposed when you are in constant prayer, huh? Because it is constant prayer that awakens within us a sense of a around-the-clock readiness to serve God. Now, what else does St. Peter say here? That our apologetics, our defense of the faith, will not evolve if our life is not imbued with the moral virtue of hope. Hope, that virtue we were talking about 
last time we were together. That virtue which the Catechism says is to desire the kingdom of heaven and eternal life as our happiness, placing our trust in Christ's promises and relying not on our own strength, but on the help of the grace of the Holy Spirit. And in the context of apologetics, from which, of course, this verse has its context, hope is manifested by preaching the gospel by desire. And such preaching, my dear friends, opens up those around us to desire what we desire. And this usually comes in the form of a question. You know, why do you live the way you live? What makes you tick for Jesus Christ the way you tick for Jesus Christ? And again, St. <laughs> Peter reminds us, it is at this point in our dialogue that we need to be what? Prepared to give an account for why we live the way we live. And we must do with a spirit of gentleness and reverence. Those virtues that increase as our life of prayer increases. If we want to be imbued with a deeper sense of what those two humble virtues are all about, gentleness and reverence, my dear friends, we need to be increasing our time of prayer. We need to be spending more time reflecting into the richness of what these petitions are all about, huh? Now, what about this virtue of gentleness? The virtue of gentleness is not a soft pat on the back, but the attitude by which we are free from harshness and violence. Gentleness is not weakness, but the attitude by which we free ourselves from any excess chatter. Gentleness is the virtue that accompanies the attitude of listening more to speak better. Listening more to speak better. You want to be a better apologist? You want to be a better evangelist? You want to be a better catechist? Pray more so that you might listen better. Reflect into the meaning of the petitions of the Our Father. Be rest assured, my friends, you will be more attuned with the Holy Spirit. What you feed grows. What you feed grows. Now, by reverence, St. Peter refers to what? That God-like honor. The Latin for reverence literally translates as respect and fear. Fear defined as that awe-like presence before God, huh? A theme discussed in other programming, the virtue of reverence helps us draw back and create space for God to work in each and every moment, in each and every encounter. It does not impose and devour, but proposes and listens. You see, my friends, reverence gives each and every individual their due courtesy and respect as a child of God. It is no wonder <laughs> that St. Peter calls for such a disposition, because it allows the defense and account to breathe and reach its full measure. Now, what's important for us to understand here is that in the absence of reverence and the listening ear, our apologetics lock into this point-counterpoint match of wits, which leads nowhere. Collectively, the interlocking virtues, we could rightfully say, of gentleness and reverence, invite the conversation to go deeper and are the bridge by which truth shall pass. Okay, so I wanted to get us started this evening with this short reflection on this beautiful passage that ought to resonate with us as we reflect into the importance of hope. What is the reason for our hope, our confidence in Jesus Christ? 
Why do we pray with confidence? Because we know God is almighty. We know of God's omnipresence. We can pray that his name will be holy because we know that his name is holy from all eternity. And we can pray for the coming of his kingdom because we know that his kingdom is already here. We can pray with assurance that his will will be done because we know his will is inexorable in spite of our free choices against him. Now, as we talk about this, to those who lack faith, all of this will seem absurd, huh? The mocking cry of the critic has always been what? Jesus promised you a kingdom, but all he left you was the church. I believe those to be the famous words of one Alfred Loisy. <laughs> but few people recognize the Son of God when he came incarnate as Jesus of Nazareth, right? Why should we expect them to notice him today when he reigns as King of Kings and Lord of Lords? Jesus promised his first disciples he would return within their lifetime and that he would then reign gloriously on the earth. My dear friends, he kept that promise as he keeps all his promises, even if we lack the spiritual vision to see their fulfillment. Brothers and sisters, he promised us a glorious kingdom within his own generation, and we boldly proclaim that he made good on that promise. For all time, he established his Eucharistic kingdom, the church. Amen to that. We know, however, that the kingdom doesn't always appear so glorious. <laughs> Jesus never said it would be paradise. His parables speak instead of, of wheat growing alongside weeds and, and of dragnets taking in both holy mackerel and unholy muck. Only at the end of time will we have uh, the vision to see the kingdom, the power, and the glory as they have been from all eternity. But our Lord did promise us a kingdom now, and he did leave us with the church. Brothers and sisters, there's no contradiction, no unfulfilled promise. You've heard me talk about this before, huh? In the great covenant that comes to us in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 10 and following, the covenant between God and David. God makes that promise to David, from your line, from your tree, will shoot forth a branch. The great prophecy of Isaiah 11.1. 1. This is why, oh, by the way, in the opening verses to the Gospel of Matthew, it is very important for Matthew to establish Christ as just not the son of Abraham, but also the son of David. Because the first century reader, my dear friends, of sacred scripture, especially the reader to the Gospel of Matthew, would have been adept to the great covenant between God and David, would have understood the significance of Christ coming from the line of David. Why? Because they knew well that great passage that comes to us from 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 10 and following. Now, why do I talk about this? Well, what does Matthew do? He not only establishes the kingdom of David as one of his great themes, but he also puts an emphasis on the figure of Peter. And what happens in Matthew 16, when Peter receives the keys to the church, he's receiving the keys to the kingdom of heaven here on earth. He's receiving the keys to govern the kingdom of heaven here on earth. And again, we have spent a great number of minutes on air on that passage. I'm not going to rehash all of that right now. 
But I do encourage you, if you are hearing this for the first time, to go back and to read the Gospel of Matthew carefully and see that, yes, Matthew established the kingdom of David as one of his great themes. This is why we see Christ receiving the title Son of David eight times in the Gospel of Matthew. So for Matthew, in establishing the great themes of the kingdom of David and Peter, we are made to reflect on how they are interconnected, and they are interconnected in a most powerful way in Matthew 16, where we read of the church. Christ as the king, giving to his new prime minister, Peter, to oversee the kingdom of heaven here on earth, the church. Okay, and this kind of thing, oh, by the way, is what you find in the first Christian thinkers. They're reflecting into this, and they have much insight to give us there. Okay, that being said, what we are made to see is that what Jesus promised and what he delivered are one and the same, right? He said that the kingdom is near, and it is. We can even say it's as near as your local parish, right? The kingdom comes where the king is present. Have we not established that as an overarching truth? That the kingdom of God comes to us in three modes. First, in the person of Jesus Christ. Second, in the interior life, in the gift of the Holy Spirit. And lastly, in its ecclesiastical dimension or the dimension of the church that we just spoke to. And I speak to these three because, well, how do they all come together? But in the Eucharist. Because where the Eucharist is, there is the King. The kingdom, the power, and the glory, my dear friends, are already here on earth because the church, the Eucharistic kingdom, is already in heaven. Amen to that. Okay, before we wrap up with our closing words, and we will certainly draw from Scott Hahn in his work that we've been going through on that, I did want to offer up a brief reflection on the word power. We just said it for the kingdom, the power. What do we think of when we first hear the word dynamite, huh? Maybe we think of the demolition of structures or, I don't know, gunpowder sticks, or maybe our our favorite movie that featured some nitroglycerin-based explosives. For myself, I will never (laughs) be able to remove that fictional character of J.J. Evans, um, played by Jim, Jimmy Walker from the 70s sitcom Good Times and his, his famous expression, dynamite, huh? Now, while I'm being playful, this is more than just a, a sitcom superlative. I mean, the origin of dynamite is actually quite intriguing. We have heard the name Alfred Nobel probably before, huh? Well, dynamite was patented by uh, the Swedish chemist Alfred Nobel, who coined the term dynamite from the ancient Greek word dynamis, meaning what? Power. You see, dynamite and power go hand in hand. And my dear friends, what is true of the natural world can help us gain insight into the world of the supernatural. In religious circles, we often use the word dynamic when we experience someone who is maybe unique and and lively in their presentation and teaching style. The word dynamic, as you might guess, comes from the same root to that as dynamite, which brings us to the account of the ascension found in the Bible and why I'm talking about dynamite. In the account of the ascension, Jesus promises his followers that they would receive the power of the Holy Spirit to bear witness to his saving love. In this passage, 
The term power comes from the Greek dunamis, a derivative of the aforementioned dynamis, huh? At Pentecost, my friends, spiritual dynamite went off as a sound came from heaven like the rush of a mighty wind, right? That's Acts 2, verse 2. And it's interesting here. Uh, this verse echoes another verse. Why? Because the sound here was like that of the thundering clapping noise heard where? But on Mount Sinai and God's fiery descent on Mount Sinai in the Exodus account. Fascinating. Uh, just by way of footnote, another word used for power in sacred scripture is energia. Energia. What does that sound like? Energy. Brothers and sisters, the love we receive in the power of the Holy Spirit is like a force of energy putting into motion the very life of God. This act of power is what we receive in the sacrament of confirmation, our own Pentecost, if you will. In the sacrament of confirmation, the gifts we receive at baptism are stirred by a new energy, we could say, in the gifts of the Holy Spirit that empower us to live a more dynamic life in and for God. So when we pray for the kingdom, for the power and for the glory, what are we praying for? Well, first and foremost, that the kingdom and the power and the glory of Jesus Christ may reign in our hearts, but as he does, we might give glory to God, and we do so in his power. Amen to that. Okay, I want to turn now to Scott Hahn's uh, last words in this book that we've been reflecting with Understanding Our Father, Biblical Reflections on the Lord's Prayer. Scott Hahn says this, prayer is necessary, but it's not easy. As Romans 8.26 reminds us, for we do not know how to pray as we ought. Now, what does that mean? We know how to pray, but in a superficial way, not as we ought. You see, the good news is that our Father knows us, and so He sent His Son to teach us, and He has sent His Spirit to transform our what? Moans, our, our groans, our sighs into the profoundest prayers that reach the depths of God's heart. What do we read in, in Romans 8.26? The Spirit helps us in our weakness. The Spirit Himself intercedes for us with sighs too deep for words. What does Jesus do when He's healing the lame man? Yes, He, he sticks His finger in His ear, right? But what does He do before that? He looks up to heaven and He sighs. He moans. Fascinating. As Scott Hahn notes here, we need to pray better because that is the only way we can live better. It is sometimes said that prayer is the breath of the spiritual life. You've heard me talk about the first beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit. The Greek word there for spirit is pneuma, lung, breath. So what the first beatitude teaches us is that we are to long for God the same way our lungs long for air. Prayer is the breath of the spiritual life. But we should add that it is also the food, rest, shelter, and means of going deeper in the spiritual life. Prayer is everything, the very life of the soul. 
And since the soul is immortal, the prayer that we build up on earth will be more permanent than, than any buildings, memorials, cathedrals, so on and so forth. Prayer is the way we live our relationship with God. As Scott Hahn loves to reflect upon that great word covenant, he says this, covenant is the word Jesus used to describe this relationship. In the ancient world, the covenant was the legal and ritual means of establishing a family bond. Marriage was considered a covenant, so was adoption. Covenant then makes us share in the life of the eternal family of God, the blessed Trinity. My dear friends, we so often pray that something will change. We pray for what? A healing, a promotion, a reconciliation, a deliverance. All of these are changes. But often what is caught up in our intentional prayer is that we will change God's mind about something. But is it not the other way around? Should we not be praying that God change our minds, that we gain a deeper understanding of God's ways? Yes, it is right to intercede on behalf of others and to pray for specific things. God wants us to do that. St. Paul says as much, right? But what we have to understand is the deeper we go into prayer, it's not so much God conforming to man, but man conforming to God. Prayer is the way we live out our covenant, our family bond with God. I mean, think of it. If the Spirit can change our moans and groans into prayer, then the Spirit can also change our minds, hearts, and wills through prayer. And He'll do this in a way that cannot happen apart from prayer. We pray in order to become saints. That's what it means to have an intense relationship with God. Sainthood is the one thing the one thing we're here on earth to acquire. And as Scott Hahn says, it's the only thing we can take away from here. You've heard me quote a local pastor before, that you'll never see a U-Haul behind a hearse. Why? Because we're not taking any of that where we're going. So we learn from the saints who have gone before us. And we learn how they have prayed the Lord's Prayer and have enjoyed its effects most abundantly. Let me say that again. We learn from those who live their lives steeped in prayer, praying the Mass, praying the Divine Office, praying those devotionals, and certainly praying the Our Father, meditating upon the power of those 55 words. 55 words, seven petitions, and all sorts of truth, beauty, and goodness contained within. Brothers and sisters, as we wrap up our time on this gospel prayer, this prayer that sits at the heart of the Sermon on the Mount, let us rekindle our sense of why we need to pray with more urgency. We live in darkness, and yet we are called to be lights. Why? Because the greater the darkness, the greater our light shines. If you want to be a light, pray more fervently. The words we have been reflecting upon over the past couple months, those 55 words which comprise the Our Father, those seven petitions that leave us 
one treasure after another to spend minutes and hours reflecting upon. Let us close now with the Our Father. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen and God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.